this is what we just watched from TV Cream. This is our last delve into a Christmas stocking of TV shows from yesteryear. My name's Graham. I'm Chris. And I'm Ian. And today it's my choice. I wonder, Graham, are we going to get a hat trick of ITV Christmas treats? Well, Ian, it's all about to be revealed to you. Um, In our usual style, again, there will be no doubt about what the show is, but I would enjoy your speculation on which festive edition of the show it is. Ooh, (laughs) teleaddicts. Oh, so many caricatures. (laughs) 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 Too many to mention. Robin Day, Paul Shane. Max Headroom. Who's that there? Is that Clive James as well? Juliet Bravo. And Diamond. Noel. Now, I've got to ask, is this going to be the eight to be the pains? I'm afraid it's not. Do you want to have another go? Oh, um, it's going to be one of those celebrity well, ones, isn't it? It's going, to be, it's going to be the Cotton Club versus the Grady Bunch. It is well identified. Fantastic. Well, you know what? I can't believe we've got this far through the modern era of what we just watched without doing the ultimate show about watching other shows. But here it is. Brilliant. Okay, well, we'll leave it there with the hoofer doofer about to appear and we'll go off, we'll watch Teleaddicts and then we will report back. We've just watched the Christmas Teleaddicts, which aired on BBC One at 7pm on Friday, 23rd of December, 1988. And it featured, uh, as Radio Times described it anyway, a clash of the TV titans. We'll get into the details about these titans and we've mentioned them passingly already. But I have a question for you both. Um, and I want you to reply simply with a number. And I will go first <clears throat> to Chris. Chris, how many illustrations do you think are featured in the opening credits of Teleaddicts? Um, no, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm, 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 I'm going to say 30. Ian? I think it's around 20. Do you want to be more specific? Um, uh, 19. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to be more specific, but higher? 21. Okay, it's going to take a while. It's 28, so I'm going to give this to Chris. It's always fascinating me, the diaspora of talent we see in the opening titles. There are things like um, Troy Tempest. There's Annika Rice. There's Robbie Coltrane from Tutti Frutti. Philip Schofield and Gordon the Gopher. Joan Collins. Jimmy Cricket. I was driving here, you know, today. Um, Chris, how tightly do you think the artist was briefed for this and how much do you think he just he had to just go with what he had reference pictures for? Uh, I think... Well, I mean, I, I think I think the I think the artist is 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 going kind of quite simply. There are a couple of there are a couple of occasions where a bit of whimsy is deployed. We see Paul Daniels pulling a cartoon rabbit out of a hat. Um, uh, there's one, there's a peculiar one of Miss Piggy and Kermit, where Kermit looks like he's been decapitated. But again, yes. I guess that's 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 the, the artist is trying to fit the into the dimensions of the Art Deco television within <laughs> which we see these uh, caricatures. So, so I think that's, with some of them, I think you know it, there's a very tight brief, and with some of them, you know, he's been let off the leash a little bit, or she's been let off the leash a little bit. Um, Ian, what do you think about seeing Batman and Robin? 
And Adam West and Burt Ward there in, in the titles. That seems a, a weird choice for um, personalities. I, I was surprised by some of these choices. G- uh, Jiminy Cricket, you've already mentioned. Uh, yeah. Surely he was not uh, in any way in the sort of the front rank of uh, TV stars by this point in the 80s. But I was pleased to see Clive James in there. It's very unflattering, though. It's very unflattering. Oh, well, yeah, they've kind of exaggerated his enormous... Uh, they've given an enormous head, haven't they, with, uh, with tiny eyes and barely little hair which, yeah, it's not that kind. But this was the year um, that he came to the BBC, so I suppose he'd been sort of added, perhaps, to the roster. I just want to take issue with the, uh, with the question of Batman and Robin, because this was mm. not so long ago after the TVAM lockout, where right. Bruce Gingell uh, replaced you know, Anne and Mike with uh, reruns of Batman and Robin. And I, I believe... Although this may be sort of television myth that the reruns of Batman got more viewers than the average edition of Good Morning Britain. Batman! So I do think Batman and Robin were in the forefront of, of our minds at, at this point in time. Well, a very good evening and welcome to the annual Teleaddicts Christmas party. So this lineup, this clash of TV titans, uh, is, is um, two teams called the Grady Bunch and the Cotton Club. Now, Chris, talk us through uh, the Cotton Club, please. Um, so the Cotton Club is led by... Mr Bill Cotton. Um, I think this is just around the period where Bill Cotton was leaving the BBC or had just left or was about to leave after a very, very long time in production and management at the BBC. Noel actually refers to him the as the father of the, of the BBC, which I think is completely right. It's in much the same way as you know, the House of Commons has the father of the house. Bill Cotton is the father of the BBC. Um, so, so his team is Terry Wogan. What is really going on underneath that calm exterior? One of the bulwarks of broadcasting, despite the <laughs> ravages of time. Or Terence, as he's referred to a couple of times. He, I mean, when he's introduced, he just does the Wogan twinkle. He need <laughs> do no more. Third member of Bill Cotton's team, Margaret, is a forthright journalist who's spoken her mind honestly about many TV programmes over the years. Um, we get the TV critic, Margaret Forward. Uh, who doesn't really get enough applause, I feel. And we get, uh, as he's introduced by Noel, Timothy Miles Binden-Rice. And one thing I noticed about Tim, Terry and Bill, they're all wearing the same tie. They're all wearing a, a green, red and blue diagonally striped tie. Um, I, I don't know what that is. It, you know, is it something like the Lord's Taverners, do you think? <laughs> I hadn't spotted that. That's, re- that's really interesting. I hadn't noticed that. But it's never remarked upon in the show. No, it isn't, is it? No. Uh, so that's the Cotton Club. Ian, talk us through the Grady Bunch. Starting off with the captain. Well, leading this team is Michael Grade. Michael Grade is a former BBC controller who, during his time at the BBC, saw his unstinting efforts to influence the direction of BBC programming, surpassed only by Norman Tebbit. Who um, had recently defected... Uh, which is how you have to describe it in, in the TV industry, from BBC to Channel 4, um, but who obviously still had a lot of affection for the BBC. Um, he was great friends with Bill Cotton, I know. So this is a, it's a very nice pairing of team captains here, So because the two of yep. them were old friends. Uh, and alongside Grade, um, you've got two enormous stars. I'm actually quite impressed by the sort of the star power of this edition. Because not only have you got Wogan and Tim Rice, uh, but you've also got Ernie Wise. We've given Michael Grade's team a handicap, and here he is, Ernie Wise. And Dirty Den. 
I don't know what to say about Mr Grantham at the end. <laughs> who surely rank as two of the biggest and most well-known faces, TV faces, of that, uh, of that time. But then alongside them, um, a bit like how on the other team, uh, the token woman is not a celebrity. Here again, you've got a non-celebrity female. In this instance, it's um, somebody called uh, Susan, Susan Rainish, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Susan is the brains behind the Italian champion family of '86. She and she has been plonked on this team quite clearly to boost the intelligence. And indeed, she is the one who actually uh, comes up with most of the right answers. Um, the episode begins with, I think, what is a general Noel format point, which is Noel <laughs> arriving. Chris, how important is Noel's arrival in every show? Uh, well, it's, it's almost, it signals, it's a direct signal. Noel's here, he's coming through the door, now the merriment may begin. So there's a kind of, there's no show without punch, isn't it? It's sort of saying, oh, you're absolutely. all here, however, yeah. nothing is going to happen until I step onto this stage. <laughs> well, it's the host, it's the host arriving. It's, it's the, yeah. now it's, it's the, it, it gives momentum to, to everything that follows because Noel rushes on and then the whole thing then kind of never stops rushing, even though everyone's seated there's still a sort of level of energy, which all comes from Noel. He is the source of all the, the momentum here. Uh, and that's, that's true for pretty much everything, isn't it, that he ever did? He is the sun and everyone else are the planets revolving around him. <laughs> but, of course, there is a little bit of extra business, which is, is oh, yeah. Leslie Grantham jumping out <laughs> from behind a trellis to scare Noel. <laughs> That has the sense to me of something that Noel wasn't expecting. This is the, the you know the start of his regular joust with whatever production team he's on. Maybe he he will always say, "Let's have a you know ten seconds, you you guys, <laughs> see what," you, and then we'll maybe revisit another ten seconds at the end. I'm just going to roll with it. Um, and he indicates, doesn't he, that there has been a bit of chaos uh, behind the scenes from the off. And it is worth pointing out that they didn't know who was going to be on which team until we got going. There was all sorts of things been going on behind the scenes and they've been trying to get at the questions. There's been a late change in lineup. He indicates that Leslie Grantham wasn't actually originally going to be part of this show. Chris, I mean, that bit of chaos, I think that is the key to Noel's career, isn't it? And that's where his watchability comes from, this idea that things are teetering. But yeah. it, Noel will get us through, albeit there'll be some panic, but it will be fun panic. Yeah. Noel's very much the sort of TV figure who, who thrives on when things go wrong. So he can start tittering and start gesturing at the crew. Uh, that, that's what he thrives on. You know, that, that, that's what gives him his, his, his televisual energy. And Ian, what, what, what do you think has happened behind the scenes? Do you think that is just nonsense made up by Noel? just for the sake of getting us going with, with something fun? Or do you, are you whiffing the aversion of a real-life calamity here? And who, who, who do you think might have, have pulled out of the running? Well, it's a bit confusing. I, I wasn't entirely sure what was real and what wasn't, because Noel says at one point that there was a producer who had been sitting in, in uh, Leslie Grantham's chair, 
Mm. But um, I don't know whether that was someone who was, uh, you know, like a, maybe an illustrious producer from TV or film industry. And so, you know, therefore a genuine celebrity or whether it was just some member of the production team. But in which case, why, would, why was the show even about to begin if you hadn't got the full <laughs> complement of, of celebrities? So the, I think it's one of the things that if you think too much about it, the whole thing falls to pieces, which, again, is probably true of most of Noel's antics. And you should just sort of uh, accept it at face value and uh, enjoy it on a kind of sort of slightly surface level and then just uh, just roll with it. So you don't think Bill Sellers w- was in the green room and suddenly took <laughs> ill? <laughs> or um, Julia Smith from EastEnders who was there and then um, uh, just a sort of a placeholder until a real EastEnder uh, jumped out from behind, um, behind the trellis. But Noel does a nice bit of um, patter about having to introduce Leslie. Did you did yeah. you spot this? I mean, it's, again, I don't know whether this is genuine, spontaneous Noel or whether someone had quickly given him a bit of a uh, card on which uh, some lines were written. You had a small part in Lady Chatterley, I seem to remember. <laughs> which is a, a, an, old, an oldie, but a goldie. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about the opening spiel. It's quite barbed, so there's mentions of Norman Tebbit. Do you remember Chris's gag about uh, Channel 4's viewing thing? Oh, yes. Uh, he declares that Michael Grade's job at Channel 4 is to take... Uh, Channel 4 into the 1990s. But enough of the viewing figures, Michael. <laughs> is, this, is this the last gasps of gags about Channel 4's viewing figures? Do you think in uh, 88 is the last time you could do that? Yeah, Noel's getting the last the last few dregs out of out, out of the tank. And it does have the feeling of a Rotary Club Christmas lunch, <laughs> I think, because a lot of the gags are very much about, you know, for, well, you know as I said, Norman Tebbit, the very kind of... Uh, small p politics of what's happening at the BBC or in the television industry. Ian, do you think that's appropriate? Well, I think you can just about get away with it because it's taken in good grace by the guests. May the best team win. And here's the first clip, as always, comedy. Let's get into the quiz, the first round proper. And I, I tell you what surprised me, Chris, watching this again is actually when it gets going, it really just has, particularly the first two rounds, the whiff of a pub quiz about it in, in that it is a reading out of questions and then a providing of the answer. First question for you. Can you name it? With very little uh, kind of faffing or yeah. titivating in between. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. Do you like that, Ian? This, this kind of pretty straight ahead quizzing at this point? Yeah, it's a good way to kick things off. Um, I was surprised, though, by the fact that we went straight into very old black and white clips. I can read. I saw what you said. <laughs> You rarely see anything in black and white on TV these days. But I suppose it wasn't so uncommon uh, at this point in time, was it? Because you would still have plenty of black and white films uh, being shown on the main channels. But yeah, it's kicking off a Christmas special with a very, very old clip of um, the good old days is not the most mm. uh, um, obvious way to... Uh, to raise the curtain. Telly Addicts did, though, actually, in, in my memory is it did favour the black and white, the vintage clips. I mean, Noel, in his Noel way, does talk up a lot about the scarcity or the, the lengths they went to to acquire a certain clip. Now, this is a special show, so we've gone to a lot of trouble to make sure the clips are really superb. And I promise you, we had to pull quite a few strings to get this vintage television. Although, albeit he does it at one point as a gag 
But I wonder if there's a bit of the um, looks familiar about the show as well, that <laughs> probably in the 80s, this was kind of um, legitimate nostalgia stuff. You would have to be going back to the 50s really to get something that's going to have a resonance with the audience. What do you think, Chris? I really wasn't surprised that we got clips of Bill and Ben. And Andy Ooh. Pandy. Ooh, blow harder. And, and of course, Bill and Ben get huge laughs from from the audience, just at the kind of the sheer sort of primitive nature of 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 that show. But those shows were the nostalgic currency of the day, of the mid eighties, or the mid to late eighties. Mm. You know, kind of black and white kids shows of of the sixties, and I guess also things like Stingray and Thunderbirds were kind of also had a kind of nostalgic sort of um, value to them at that point in time. I think that's really interesting, actually, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's a reminder that um, by this point in time, 1988, the tradition was already well established for um, audiences to start giggling at even the brief glimpse of an old television program that was already well baked into sort of national psyche um but but also um i wonder whether this was also a sort of a slightly after effect of the enormous amount of um stuff the bbc did a couple of years earlier in 1986 um when they celebrated the 50th um anniversary of television <laughs> Which was, um, I remember it well at the time because it was really exciting. Uh, they did uh, a whole week of repeats. Every night there was stuff on BBC One and Two, cherry-picked, as they would say, from the archives. <laughs> and if you uh, were of a certain age uh, that you were sort of just developing your interest in television and, and old programmes and you'd never really seen any of these things before, it was an absolute goldmine. Um there was nowhere else to see these sorts of things at the time. Uh, so I guess that might have sort of launched a little bit of um, a trend for nostalgia programming, which kind of never really went away after that. Ian, you're right. This is the start of the TV nostalgia boom. We had kind of Channel 4 sort of doing reruns of, uh, you know, The Avengers, The Prisoner. We had BBC One showing repeats of Hancock's Half Hour in black and white in in prime time. Um, we even had the fantastic uh, Sunday lunchtime series Windmill with Chris Searle showing clips of, you know, a lot of things that you know, we see in teleaddicts. And, you know, again, for me, this is kind of when I first sort of sort of developed a, an interest in TV. Um, so to see all these clips of kind of you know, amazing things, you know, sometimes from the 50s and the 60s, you know, kind of, as, as I said, this is the start of the TV nostalgia wave, which, as you say, Ian, never went away. I think we've reached or we've discovered this kind of nexus crossover in all our histories because this was definitely the start of my interest in old telly as well. I remember in TV 50 um, having my video on recording pause for Doctor Who clips and 
uh, getting a bit with Ringo Starr talking about uh, Quatermass. Hello. And actually, when Teleaddicts would come around, that would be another kind of area where I could potentially find bits of old telly. Now, Chris, I think that was that is definitely something that they are aware of is a value in the show. Probably I'm going to attribute that awareness to Noel himself because I think he's very savvy about these kind of things. The clips run quite long. And actually, yeah. it's very clever to think here is a fun quiz show with lots of Noel bits of business where there is also going to be this added layer of interest for people. That's definitely a key part of the format and the success, isn't it, of Teleaddicts? I think so. I mean, it's interesting what you said about the length of the clips. I mean, some of the clips are in some ways quite mundane. Um, we get around where we get clips of Dallas. It stops right now, JR. Pamela's my wife and you're going to treat her with respect. Now, listen here, little brother. No, I won't listen and the Thornbirds and the clip from Dallas you know you would have expected the clip from Dallas would be JR getting shot but it's not it's just a kind of communal garden sort of row between Bobby and JR isn't it kind of, mm, mm. Uh, and, and, but, there's, but I think there's a kind of sort of uh, acknowledgement on, 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 on behalf of, of the production team at Teleaddicts that actually no we don't necessarily need to see the, the standard shot of JR getting shot we can have something else and actually, following on from the clips that you mentioned there, I think there is a knowingness uh, in terms of some of these selections. So the Thornbirds. God is in his wool room. All is right with the world. That aired to a lot of controversy on BBC One. It was uh, just before Grade had taken over his control. It was seen as uh, symptomatic of things that were going wrong with the channel. Uh, one thinks that probably sort of throw Thornbirds on and... Mike's probably going to have a few choice words there. And of course, if you've got Terry on, you've got to give him some Dallas material to work with, haven't you, Chris? Oh, absolutely. And it also gives him the opportunity to, to do his terrible impression of Gary Ewing as well. That's old Gary, Gary Ewing, <laughs> the one who didn't want to be part of the, the terrible chicanery and double dealing that goes on in Dallas. And of course, we get the fantastic question, which was, whose husband's, husband's mistress was Sue Ellen's brother-in-law's daughter's husband's sister? which actually takes up the entire screen. And uh, even Terry is baffled by the answer. They, they sort of stumble on the answer, which kind of is, is quite logically Sue Ellen. And then Noel brandishes this fantastic sort of family tree, which sort of, which sort of explains why the answer is Sue Ellen. And, uh, but it's, it's just, it is literally a throwaway gag because sort of Noel just sort of waves this chart in the air and literally throws it away. Um, let's talk more about Terry. I mean, Terry does what Terry does. There is a twinkle, as you, you've rightly said. There is comedy umbrage at uh, times, which he's very good at, uh, and, or the Terry crestfallen face. But there, is, there are other things going on with Terry. Sometimes he's off mic and you can hear him heckling a little bit or adding in, uh, joshing along and witticisms. And I felt that unbalanced the show. You do with a drop of it here, <laughs> I mean, he and Noel, they are the big beasts of BBC One, and it doesn't seem right to put them in the same environment, particularly where one has seniority over the other. Uh, what's your feeling about that, Ian? Was Terry really the right booking for this? Yeah, well, I have a theory about uh, Terry Wogan, and that is that um, when he is in sole charge of a format, like the BBC's Wogan chat show, blankety blank uh, doing the commentary for Eurovision uh, he excels he's able to perform to the best of his abilities 
because he is in sole command. The way he's not in charge or the way he's not hogging the limelight. Where he's forced to cooperate or be one of a team, I think he struggles and he does not come out particularly well. Uh, he often ends up um, appearing rather brusque or indifferent or even a bit unlikable. And I think that's true here. I don't think he just is ever able to operate in an endearing way when he is alongside other people. He is naturally the sole star. And I don't think he, in this, in this sense, I don't think he was a really great booking here. Yeah, I, I really agree with that, Ian. I, I, I felt watching this that it was very much autopilot, Terry. We got kind of lines like, uh, I don't like it, the show's going too well. <laughs> which, is, which is very much uh, a Wogan stock line for, you know, when he wants to chuck in a bit of self-deprecation. And so what are we attributing this to? Because, uh, you know, as you say, Ian, Terry works very well when he is the man in charge. Conversely, on his chat show, I think it would be fair to say that Terry was very much able to step aside and let the guest take the spotlight. But Ian, are you saying things have to be in Terry's on Terry's own terms in order for him to be successful? Exactly. Yes. So you're right. If if he is with somebody else, it works, but only if he is the one who's making the running and is able to cue in anecdotes or play the straight man uh, and give space to others. Um, if he is not being given space in return, however, things start to go awry. And that is very clearly on evidence here. He doesn't really know how to interact, especially during the props round. OK, prop bag time. All right. Where he's not mm. only having to share the limelight with other people. Right. How close were we? He's also got Noel right up next to him and that's really interesting noel is sort of invading <laughs> terry's personal space and you can see mm. wogan doesn't like it he throws the props on the floor he pulls rather uncomfortable faces um it's actually not that pleasant to see that's what i mean about autopilot terry he just very kind of he, he has kind of sort of this automatic disdain for the whole thing and you know tries to dismiss the whole thing for a bit of a laugh but it, it you just want to, you just want him to play the game I suppose maybe the thing with Terry is that one part of his stock in trade is to sort of paint a picture that he's in the middle of a shambles and this whole thing is actually a waste <laughs> of everybody's time now that's great when it's his own shambles but yeah. when he's he's showing up in Noel's house at BBC Pebble Mill <laughs> and he, he is averring that Noel is hosting a shambles. Suddenly, that's not so endearing, is it, Chris? I completely agree. I, 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 I don't have anything more to add. You, you're completely right. Terry's the guest in someone else's house, basically, and he's not playing by the house rules. I'm amazed we all had such strong feelings about it. Chris, I liked it when we were talking about the Dallas question. You were, you were talking about the fact that Noel briefly brandishes this kind of uh, elaborate Dallas family tree, which he has on screen for about a second and makes a gag of just throwing it away. I like the profligacy of this, that Noel is saying, there's a lot of added value in our show. We have a production team <laughs> who are working very hard. I think, you know, you really see that where, for example, okay, there's Susan Tully and Letitia Dean from EastEnders who present... Uh, uh, one of the the rounds on VT, but then moreover, there is, and they are specifically 
announced this week, Madge and Mrs Mangle from Neighbours. A character from a popular series. She separated from her husband. Now, that's brilliant, isn't it? it? Just, I mean, not that in itself it's TV gold, but it communicates something to the audience, doesn't it? That, that, That they are doing these international deals to make a small segment on teleaddicts. Well, I thought that 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 appearance by by Mrs. Mangle and Madge was kind of is particularly timely because this was the height of Neighbours mania in the UK. This was just after um, Charlene and Scott had got married on on Neighbours, and this was at a time when Kylie and Jason were in the charts, with especially for you. But it also signified that kind of you know that as you say, Graham. They'd taken the effort to ask Grundy Television to make a little clip of of, of uh, Mrs. Mangle and Madge sitting on the sofa. I was I was particularly taken by what Madge was wearing. So initially, I thought it was a T-shirt with Robert Smith of the Cure on it. So I think it was just I think it, I think it was just a clown motif. But yeah, you're right, Graham. It, it, it signalled that they'd taken a lot of effort to to get this uh, clip from the other side of the world and. And Noel mentions uh, quite gauchely the fact that he's going to be live on Christmas Day that year. And in that live edition, this would be his first one from Television Centre, but there would be a live link up with the Mir Space Station. Well, over the years on our Christmas morning show, we have established a number of broadcasting firsts. But what we are now going to attempt to do is a moment of television history. There'd be an interview with Thatcher. And I, I just like the idea, Ian, of the tendrils of Noel Edmonds. Going around the globe, <laughs> he has his emissaries setting up deals, doesn't he? And do you think there is deal-making going on all the time? And so Grundy, probably one day, we've had the call, it's from Noel's people. Do you think this is this was just in the 80s, constantly going on? He has fixers arriving at airports. I like to imagine uh, Noel having some lair at a giant headquarters somewhere uh, in the BBC uh, where... Uh, when you would arrive, it would be like one of those wartime operations rooms with a giant uh, map of the world <laughs> on the wall yeah. with various sort of twinkling lights and arrows and all sorts of flashing banks of data and information setting up all these different um, stunts and television firsts um, ready for him to just sort of drop casually into uh, whatever program he had that week. So we come to the all-important spotlight round. We go into the final spotlight round. Um, I felt it was a little devoid of drama. Now, Ian, I'll come to you about the cheating because I just feel that you'll probably have some hot opinions on the cheating. But before we get there, Chris, I was surprised that Noel didn't vamp it up a little more. Kind of, we're going into the last thing. The whole competition could teeter on this. I was actually quite surprised when the quiz was then over at the end of this round. Did you think you missed a chance for some good drama there? Again, I think the whole thing was slightly derailed by Terry Wogan um, because he's in, he's in, he's put in the spotlight for the for the Cotton Club team, and you know, he, by this stage, he's sort of given up any uh, any pretense of being interested in the act. Look at this. Name the duo. Hang on, I get on my glasses. So, so I think even if Noel had tried to sort of amp it up a bit, it, it would it would have rebounded on him. I mean, we get at one point where. Terry is asked. Name the Blue Peter baby. And this just doesn't compute 
for Terry. Mm. How, yeah, mm. how can you have a baby on Blue Peter? <laughs> Big horror. What a, what a, what a madcap idea that well, is. You know, worse still, a lot of the time, Terry physically isn't in the spotlight. What we're seeing is illuminated <laughs> shoulder. That's bad etiquette, isn't it, Chris? I mean, Terry should know that, that, yeah, you know, this is a simple bit of the format. Yeah, but again, this is, this is Terry slightly going, going rogue but in, not in a particularly likeable way. And uh, Noel fastidiously says... And if I could please ask no other team members or the audience to whisper anything... Oh, come on. <laughs> Immediately they start, the teams are whispering, Ian, I mean, were you livid? How, how did you feel about this? No, I was grateful there was cheating, because otherwise it would have been a massive damp squib, because clearly Wogan didn't have a clue about most of the questions. And um, mm. therefore, you know, was entirely reliant on the people around him to actually um, do well. Um, so I'm very glad, actually, that there was cheating. Thank goodness there was. Otherwise, it would have been a rat mess. The actual ending is the least memorable part of it. The Grady Bunch have won. And so, with this marvellous feeling of gamesmanship, <laughs> beneath an avalanche of cheating, we've ended up with a gap of three. It's 24 to the Cotton Club. But Michael Grade's team have made it. 27. Well done. Uh, so the whole business of the quiz suddenly feels very nebulous. But then there is another bit of staged chaos, um, <laughs> which I think is riffing on the fact that in EastEnders at the time, Dirty Den's character was in prison. Um, Ian, why don't you talk us through the, these uh, events that um, finish up the show? Yeah, Noel is just doing his uh, final wrap-up and reminding us to watch him live on BBC television on Christmas Day when suddenly there's a commotion off-camera and you can see in Noel's eyes that immediately he's excited because this was not what he was <laughs> expecting. And uh-oh, something is about to unfold in which he is going to be called upon to deploy his strengths as a, um, a spontaneous performer. And then what happens is that two police officers come on, two actors. Stop. Right, stop sorry about this interruption, everybody. And um, they're on the lookout for a... a vile desperado. Uh, and, of course, they're actually looking for Dirty Dan. Which one of these people is Dirty Dan? <laughs> In unison, all members of the Grady Bunch point towards Noel <laughs> and these uh, police officers haul Noel <laughs> off the stage. Will you say goodnight? Will you say goodnight? Go on, goodnight. 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 Do you like to see Noel shrieking? Is that, is that <laughs> your go-to for Noel, Ian? Is that what... Yes, I think so, yeah. I th well, um, <laughs> in short, yes. <laughs> at this point, yeah, at this point in his career, yes. You know, fast forward a few years, the sight of Noel shrieking was not pleasant. It's interesting, though, kind of, I, f I feel we get the, the, the seeds a little of what would become... Noel's house party with within this episode uh, from the start with Noel coming through the door and you know, mm. doing a bit of business to the end where he's sort of reacting against kind of these odd fictional characters um, you, you get the feeling that kind of Noel's maybe thinking I'm onto something here I could construct a, you know, a world of, of uh, out of this and it's actually it's a win-win for him isn't it because he could say oh look I'm being set up Oh, they pulled another trick on me. I'm the stooge. But it's also sort of saying, this is all through Noel's eyes. He is, he <laughs> is the character that we are identifying with. He is basically the star. So every show starts with a bit of Noel. And then at the end, you're looking for what's going to happen to Noel now. It doesn't matter who else has been on yeah. there, what narrative we've been through. Oh, Noel's <laughs> in trouble again. Well, I think it's important to stress kind of that everything that happens between the start and the end 
is kind of pure quizzery, really. Yes, it, yes. it doesn't intrude on on the mechanics of of, of the quiz, um, and you know, so maybe it should have stayed that way. And we haven't said it specifically, but Ian, I think we would all agree, wouldn't we, that he stewards the quiz very well. Oh yeah, he? you can't fault him on that score at all. No, he is um, incredibly professional, very slick. You get the impression that there were very few retakes that had to be done, and this the filming was probably done pretty much in real time. Uh, well, one thing that's puzzled me about Teleedix, and I, I am a fan of the show, but why the 1930s Bakelite design aesthetic? I mean, I wondered, for example, in the 80s, was that kind of backdrop of the sort of vaguely Art Deco-y houses, was that an evocation of commuter belt homes because they were all built in the 30s? What, what is the thinking there, Chris? I think they're trying to evoke kind of a, a notion of, of family, of suburbia, of everybody sitting down and watching TV in the evening and becoming a tele addict. I think I think that's possibly what's going on there. You can't really sort of, you know, get into get into the designer's mind, but that's my guess of what they're trying to do. Uh, the music for tele addicts is fantastic. The kind of crunchy opening riff. Uh, how important is the theme music of tele addicts, Chris? Um, I love the theme music for Teleaddicts. Um, I, I, as you say, Graham, it's very sort of mid eighties, uh, but what I, you know, it 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 doesn't actually say television because I think you could have sort of commissioned something that was kind of nostalgic or kind of pastiched themes or had kind of sort of you know was a kind of a medley of old TV themes. But actually, they've not gone from that gone for that at all. Uh, I think it's interesting that the uh, theme music for Teleaddicts is by George Fenton who also uh, did kind of Bergerac. Um, and he did uh, uh, all the BBC News things. I wonder how many people sitting down to Teleaddict at seven o'clock would have known that he also did the theme music for the six o'clock news an hour earlier. It's a very propulsive theme, isn't it, Ian? That kind of boom, 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 boom is sort of saying, off we go. I love it. It's one of those themes that as soon as it begins, you know instantly what the show is. And if you heard it from the next door room, you know, if, or if you were upstairs, <laughs> it's the sort of theme that would, uh, that would make you come running because it is a real, mm. off we go, quick, things are, things are about to start. I mean, in that sense, yeah, it's, it's an absolute brilliant bit of music. It, it ticks all the boxes that you want. I just think the whole world of teleaddicts is beautifully realised. I mean, nowadays we would call it branding. I guess back then mm. we would, it would have been referred to as coordinated. But the graphics are lovely. The animated countdowns into the clips are lovely. The typeface mm. is lovely. You know, mm. we've got the whole conceit with the hoofa-doofa. We've got the fact that the contestants are on sofas and armchairs and not behind desks. I mean, if you compare it to something like A Question of Sport, which mm. was in its pomp at the same time, that looked far more cold and prosaic and perfunctory than, than Teleaddict. It's, it's beautifully done, I think. There's so much love and thoughtfulness gone into it. And one format point, we don't see it here, but was, do you remember if, if um, the teams couldn't get an answer right, then Noel would throw it to the audience. And Chris, how would he do so when he th threw to the audience to have a go? Teleaddicts! <laughs> 
<laughs> I think, you know, all joking aside, this is one of Noel's strengths because I'm convinced that that is his idea. And it's brilliant mm. because it makes the audience feel like they're taking part in the show. And mm. just the whole idea that we're all telly addicts. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely uh, conceit. And you know, it's, it's, it's not an obvious one either, I don't think. I've been running all my lives. 25 years after this uh, episode of Telly Addicts, Doctor Who would celebrate its 50th anniversary and there would be a coming together of David Tennant, uh, Tom Baker, mm. oh. uh, Matt Smith, on screen together. Now, the thing that links that 50th anniversary of Doctor Who to this episode of Telly Addicts is the director, Nick Hurran. And one wonders whether his experience of wrangling Wogan and Raid <laughs> and Edmonds made him just the man for the job for making sure that, you know, John Hurt was able to get, get along uh, well enough with Matt Smith and David Tennant. Do you think he, 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 when he was in that green room, he thought, I've been here before? I know exactly how to pitch it this time. I think if you can wrangle Noel, you can you can <laughs> you can handle hurt. That's that's what I'm saying. I think you're, I think I think you're spot on with that with that uh, with that thesis, Graham. Do you think that's a, t- uh, a maxim in in television industry, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Ian? If you can wrangle Noel, you can get on with hurt. I think yeah. You can imagine uh, when they used to send. Uh, people on the sort of the BBC training courses back in the eighties, if you're just starting out as a runner or a production assistant, uh, you'd go to one of the sessions and some old owl from many, many years standing <laughs> would turn up and say, if you only take one thing away from today's session, is it this? If you can wrangle Noel Edmonds, you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> so lastly we're looking uh we're looking now ahead at the christmas tv schedules for this year 2020 um and again another sadness of 2020 to add to all the other various sadnesses is that there's no Noel on tv at christmas and it's been like that for a couple of years now i don't think that is a state of affairs that is going to continue chris surely another TV return is on its way for Noel Edmonds, surely. Well, you'd like to hope so. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much space in the schedules still for, 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 for a Noel vehicle, especially now when you know, the ongoing restrictions make it hard you know, to, to produce dramas and comedies. There's got, there's got to be scope for Noel, a big screen, um, worldwide link-up. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. <laughs> And if I can go to another Doctor Who anniversary uh, story, uh, Ian, um, I'm going to mangle a line from the, the Doctor Who 20th anniversary story, The Five Doctors, and say to you that surely a TV universe without Noel Edmonds scarcely bears thinking about. <laughs> I think we need to leave it a couple more years, I think, before the latest iteration of Edmonds can can be unleashed I think we still need to clear the air a little bit after all that palaver when he tried to buy the BBC and then he, th- <laughs> and then he thought that uh, he'd been swindled out of this or that money and all that nonsense um, I reckon that <laughs> some point in the next decade not too far off the nation will be ready once again
You've been listening to What We Just Watched from TV Cream, in which we watched The Christmas Telly Addicts, which aired on BBC One on Friday the 23rd of December 1988. And that's the last of our podcasts for now. Until we next meet, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 